Welcome back to the Clemson Podcast. I'm your host, Cody, here today with STS writer and football X's and O guru, Alex Kraft. Alex, thanks for coming on. Hey, Cody. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great to have you. And um, we know when I've, I've read your articles over the last, I don't know what it's, what it's been, two months, um, heavy, heavy schematic type stuff, but very, very interesting. So I was like, I gotta, we've got to have Alex on to kind of, you know, to give a little bit of uh, more insight on what goes on from an X's and O's standpoint. But also we'll talk about uh, the upcoming season and just some other stuff as well. Um, but yeah, first I want to ask you, um, I, I'm always curious, how did you learn about all the X's and O's? Do you have like a football background or is that, um, is that just from like internet studying? Actually, I'm, I'm more of a self-taught guy. I never played competitive tackle football. I was always rather small. I think I was, gosh, when I started high school, I was maybe 5'7", 120 pounds. By the time I graduated, I was 5'11", 150. So I was never really big enough for football. I was, I was a swimmer. But I grew up around Clemson football, always lived and breathed it, so to speak. And uh, really, I think it was a combination of, I guess, those NCAA football games like Madden and, uh, I guess, uh, reading a lot of Kraken stuff over the last year where I really started to uh, realize I could put it, put it together myself. And when, when Kraken left to go start his own site, uh, Brian asked me to, to pick up some of his slack, and I was just as surprised as everyone else to learn I could actually do it. Um, and since then, I've... I've continued uh, educating myself, you know, with a lot of different material, internet, books, uh, talking with Matt, uh, otherwise known as DBBM, quite a bit. He and I kind of tag team a lot of the stuff, bounce some ideas off of one another. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that'll ruin whatever credibility I've built, but I've, I don't have much of a football background other than uh, just teaching myself really over the past, in earnest, over the past six, seven, maybe, I guess a year, we could say. I think that makes it even more impressive that you don't have a football background and that you're able to to learn this stuff and uh, and break it down and think in a in a very I say like in layman's terms. So so how do you do you follow like NFL teams to learn more of like their formations and apply that to what Clemson does or um, how, do you have like a broader knowledge like I would say of, of football both pros and uh, college. I don't really follow the NFL that much outside of, I guess, the Panthers. I'm, I guess you'd say a casual fan. Uh, and I like keeping up with so many Clemson players in the NFL now. But uh, I'm not a, a big NFL fan. I'll watch college football for, far more than the NFL. Um, now, whenever I do watch the NFL, I'll pay attention whenever they show the All-22 film. And if there's a big touchdown pass or something, I'll, I'll be able to recognize a bust fairly easily because uh, defenses are a lot more similar than offenses in terms of college versus NFL. Um, the college game is far more innovative on the offensive side, and the NFL is kind of copying it, but defenses generally don't evolve quite as much as offenses. Now, you've got someone like Bill Belichick who's doing all sorts of crazy hybrid stuff with 4-3 versus 3-4 fronts, but uh, defense, really, if you can recognize what's going on at one level, you can recognize it uh, pretty much anywhere. Now, I could be getting ahead of myself there. I, I don't want to make it seem like I know everything about defensive football, certainly, but it's, it's not as hard to identify coverages as you would think once you really know what to look for. Uh, it's all just a matter of looking at the safeties, uh, seeing what is done there, um, how they rotate before the snap, and then at the snap is, is really where you can tell what they're doing. Yeah, and I guess maybe applying that to, to Clemson, you wrote an mm -hmm. article about the they're 4-3 over front. And by the way, if you haven't read, read this article, it's really good. 
um, has some really nice graphics so you can follow along. You don't have to be a, a diehard football fan to, to understand a lot of this stuff, but it, I think it's really neat because uh, Venables is doing some amazing things and I, I call it like his, his secret sauce. What is that? And you kind of uh, shed some light on that, but um, I guess if you could I guess talk a little bit about what he does um, on a fundamental level in that 4-3. Okay, well, uh, the 4-3 uh, really is more of the aggressive scheme as opposed to a 3-4. It's generally considered a one-gap, not always, but essentially it's a one-gap uh, alignment um, where you want your defensive lineman to penetrate in the backfield and get there, uh, disrupt the passer, the running back. Whereas in the 3-4, you generally want big linemen to just occupy space and keep the linebackers free to make plays. Uh, that really works well for our recruiting with the defensive line especially, which really, if you want to talk about his secret sauce, it, it's the players. It's, it's Marion Hobby. It's Dan Brooks. Those are the guys that make it work. Uh, probably the 4-3 overfront is more conducive to stopping modern offense like with the spread because uh, you can devote four linemen to getting into the backfield while you can keep your back seven off the line of scrimmage generally. Now, we'll blitz people like bullwear and stuff. Uh, where, whereas with a 4-3 under front, you would have the Sam linebacker on the line of scrimmage, and you'd essentially have a five-man front, which leaves you with only six, uh, a back six. So it's, it's a bit harder to stop the pass that way. So we, we go in the over, yet still focus on stopping the run because we have such athletic and dominant defensive linemen. So we can keep a back seven, uh, there to stop the spread, the passing game, the quick screens, all that stuff that you really can't quite defend as well with six guys back there. Uh, but we still get pressure and control the line of scrimmage because the defensive line is, frankly, just so damn good. So you want to talk about a secret sauce. It's, it's a bit of philosophy like that, but really it, it works because we have monsters up front. Shaq Lawson, Kevin Dodd, they were number one and number two in tackles for loss. And, yeah, it's, it's part alignment, but it's generally because they're just – freaks with outstanding coaches yeah and you would you say that helps in recruiting in terms of like hey here you're a defensive lineman you're seeing these guys rack up all these tackles for loss these sacks due to the the schematic the penetration they're getting um do you, do you think that helps when you're recruiting a kid like a defensive tackler defensive end oh for sure yeah you're compare it to anyone who runs a three four let's say georgia uh, i don't want to say alabama because they churn out defensive linemen no matter what scheme they run. Uh, but Georgia, they run a 3-4. Um, if you're a defensive lineman, particularly a defensive end, do uh, you want to be in a 4-3 scheme where you're asked to penetrate, get the sacks, and essentially make all the plays yourself? Or do you want to go play in a 3-4 where really you're just doing the dirty work and keeping the linebackers free? You know, in a 3-4, it's the outside linebackers that are the pass rushers that make all the money at the pro level. Uh, but in the 4-3, it's the defensive ends. And uh, relative to the four three over, if you've got a, a just a, a quick guy who can shoot the gap between the guard and the tackle out of a three technique, like let's say Grady Jarrett, for example, was phenomenal at phenomenal at it. Uh, Carlos Watkins fills that role for us now. Um, Christian Wilkins can do both one tech and three tech. He can do anything um, for defensive tackles. Yeah, they, it's the same thing there. Um, they're asked to penetrate, shoot gaps, make plays themselves. So you're a defensive lineman, unless you're just a big guy who knows he's a nose tackle, you would much rather play in a 4-3 than a 3-4. Uh, it's, it's really all about uh, the, the gap scheme, which, which gap, a one gap or a two gap attack. And one gap, defensive lineman want one gap all the way. And I guess looking at, because we, we have the, the parts, like you said, our interior def defensive line, 
um, defensive tackles, that position group might be the best on the 2016 team. It's just going to be that, like you said, that damn good. Um, how do you evaluate looking at um, at this upcoming season players like uh, where we think could potentially be a weak link because there's some inexperience, like primarily like defensive end. Um, how do you think the guys like uh, Cleveland Farrell and, and uh, Richard Yergin will do replacing uh, Dodd and, and Lawson? Well, uh, a lot remains to be seen with the summer workout sessions, uh, how much weight they gain. I think, I think Farrell and Bryant are already about where they need to be in terms of weight. Yergin needs to put on a little bit more uh, for a significant snap load, workload, I should say. But mainly, mainly it comes down to experience, you know, how many snaps they've gotten. It, it's not great. It's not ideal. But uh, I, Auburn, who knows how tough they'll be. It, really, right now, I think it'll be Farrell starting at the weak side, and that'll allow us to put Bryant on the strong side. Uh, but, you know, then again, we've got so many different combinations with someone like Christian Wilkins. We could put him on the strong side, and that gives us – that lets us put Bryant back on the weak side. Uh, so in terms of a weak link on the defensive line, uh, frankly, I'm not sure if there is one because we have so many different uh, groupings we can put in, different alignments. We can put Bryant on either side. We can put Wilkins out essentially at three of the four positions. We can put him at one tech, three tech, or out at strong side defensive end. Um, so if, if there is a weak link, it'll be probably once we get down into players on the second string, uh, it, it'll come down to depth. I think that's that's where we may be hurt. Although last year, as many snaps as, as Lawson and Dodd played, that could have been an argument as well. Uh, but, you know, without those two headliner guys, it, it'll be a little bit more of a committee approach at defensive end. Um, so we won't have quite the same uh, production from the position itself. But I think with a committee approach, uh, it won't be as big of a weak link as people are saying. My uh, my concern for weak link obviously is going to be in the secondary, which which we'll get into. Yeah, no, let's let's talk about that because um, I think one one part uh, one article that I think you uh, kind of deferred to to Matt or DBBM from last year, um, just some of the schematics there. But what we do lose, and what I've said on the previous podcast is I think it might be a net neutral, maybe even a net positive with guys like Van Smith and, um, and J.R. Johnson. However, I, that's not accounting for some of the things, some of the way, ways that Venables would use T.J. Green and J. Ron Kirst as like linebackers at the safety position to, to go up, fill gaps, and, uh, and really just use their physicality. I think you refer to it as, uh, I can't remember, you was transcendent physicality or something like that, mm-hmm. but yeah, I did <laughs> What does that mean um, in terms of what Venables can do or we sh- or maybe can't do with Van Smith and Jadar Johnson because they're simply they're not as physical they're not the same physical specimens. Right, right. Well, uh, first of all, Venables used the safeties with extreme liberty last year, uh, not just because they were so diverse in their skill set, but because we had outstanding cornerback play, which allowed us to play a lot of cover one, a lot of cover three where the corners were out on their own, where we could bring one of the safeties down to act as another linebacker, uh, and one safety would play deep. Um, I don't know if we'll see as much of that this year, not just because the cornerback play won't be as strong, certainly not on the field side. Uh, Tankersley is, we know what we have in Tankersley on the boundary, but field corner and nickel are a bit of a mystery. But uh, um, it, it remains to be seen how... Smith, in particular, will hold up and run support. I'm, I'm higher on Johnson. He has a tremendous workload from the last three, four years. He's a redshirt senior. He's got 
all the relevant experience needed. He's not quite the athlete that J. Ron Kearse was at the position, but I feel good in, in, uh, in Johnson. Smith, though, I'm not sold on just yet. He's really the only option there right now, the only one with any uh, experience whatsoever. And frankly, that wasn't very many snaps to begin with. Uh, he's about six feet, 190. He's not the same athlete Green was, not in terms of size or speed. Uh, so I'm much more hesitant. I'm not sure it's going to be a net positive or even a net neutral uh, safety position uh, because Green and Curse could do everything you needed needed in run support. Uh, we know that they were they were uh, they left a little bit to be desired towards the end of the year in pass coverage, what with busts and then a few uh, missed tackles and shaky effort plays. But I. Uh, Really, the way Venables used the, the safeties last year was was remarkable, and why we shut down the run against everyone. Yeah, I think um, that's. We, I think that's the thing we don't account for is is casual or uh, I guess just your um, even diehard fans that don't know all the ins and outs. Is it seemed like oh well things could improve at the safety position because no more no more bust or fewer busts, um, but that's a huge part of it. Like you said, right. that and even support. that's a reach that that's wishful thinking there. Uh, Smith, he's, he's a, a true sophomore. I'm sure he'll bust. Uh, Johnson, I, I don't think he'll necessarily bust because frankly, Kears didn't bust that often. It was really just, it honestly, it seemed like a few uh, plays where he just didn't put in max effort. Uh, say what you will about him trying to protect his, his draft stock, whatever it was. Uh, but green was the one who busted far more often. And I, think it's fair to say we may see that from Smith given the the same level of experience heading into this year versus where Green was last year because let's let's remember Green came in as a wide receiver played that position almost hardly at all mainly a kick returner in 2013 uh, 2014 he was a backup to, to Robert Smith and then last year was his first as a starter uh, so I think it's fair to say that Smith is going to have the same sort of growing pains as, as Green did so I hope it's a net positive, even a net neutral, but I'm, I'm not on that bandwagon just yet. Yeah, a lot to be determined. And like you, I think you wrote in your article too, Van Smith's uh, health could be an issue. I mean, not just his size, but like all the all the big uh, hits he's going to have to lay or be relied on to to come up in that run support. Is that going to impact his health? And then, like you said, like depth, what does that mean? Is Tanner News ready? Is uh, Denzel Johnson ready? I'm not sure. But um, but let's let's jump around a little bit. What's that? I said, nor am I. <laughs> well, let's, let's jump around a little bit. We had a little order uh, preset earlier, but I think it kind of natural progression. Um, you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the, what you saw in the spring game, some of the nickel packages. Um, that's where we would uh, bring in uh, a, uh, I guess you would say like a Corn Wiggins um, into that Sam, nickel Sam role. Um, for, right, a third corner. Yeah. But yeah, what, what is, your, I'll just you know, let you leave it for you. What, what's your concern there? Well, uh, right now my concern is not enough bodies at the cornerback position. Uh, you know, losing McKenzie Alexander wasn't a surprise, but it was still a huge blow. Uh, if you would ask me who I wanted back out of the five underclassmen that left, who I wanted back the most, it is without a doubt McKenzie Alexander, just because he allowed Venables to get so creative with the safeties, like I said, uh, and specifically to the nickelback position, that uh, is where we replace the strong side linebacker with a third cornerback we could still defend the run with a seven-man box out of that position because we would bring green or curse down and still be able to defend three receivers with three corners uh, and one high safety. But I'm not quite sure how that formation will look this year. Uh, with, with Wiggins' uh, positive prognosis, it, I, I feel much better about it. 
Uh, and he, let's not forget, he could give us some, some depth and flexibility at safety as well. Uh, frankly, he just needs to be on the field. If, <laughs> if we're in the 4-3, I'd, I'd like to see him at free safety. Uh, if we're in the nickel, I'd like to see him at nickel. Um, but right now, I think uh, if I'm putting the five defensive backs out there in the nickel, I would put Tankersley, obviously, at, at boundary corner. He's entrenched there. We know what we have in him. He's, right now, he's viewed as a potential first-rounder for next year. Uh, strong safety is, is Johnson, Jadar Johnson. I feel good about him. He's not quite the specimen curse was, but he's, he's not far behind. He's, he's solid in that role. Then Smith, uh, honestly, quite by default at free safety. The, the, his backup right now is Tanner Muse, and he didn't look ready in the spring game just yet. Field corner is where the big competition is. I, I think Mark Fields is the guy there, and he, quite frankly, he has to be. Ryan Carter doesn't have the speed to, or the cover skills, quite honestly, to handle a receiver's field or a, an offense's field receiver one on one, and even at nickel, he can still be preyed upon. Uh, versus Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl, they mostly kept Sterling Shepard uh, in the slot to try and get him on Ryan Carter, and Carter actually played fairly well. He he probably had his best game of the year against Oklahoma, but I'm still not ready to rely upon him full time all season at that position. I think he gives us great flexibility and depth uh, throughout the entire secondary because he was cross-training at safety before Adrian Baker was hurt. Um, and in fact, if he were if he were healthy, I'd say let's put him at field corner and bring in Fields or, or Wiggins uh, to nickel like we did last year, the second half of the season. We put in Baker at field and brought McKenzie Alexander inside to nickel, and that worked quite well for us. Uh, with with Baker outside, he. He did very well with two huge interceptions against Florida State and South Carolina, let's not forget, both of which came in the red zone. Uh, but it, it's, it's a big mystery right now. With, uh, with Wiggins' health, health though, uh, everything looks positive there based on what we heard last month. Um, I think he's, he's in line to, to step in whenever we go with, with three corners. Yeah, I think w- Wiggins, is, uh, he's kind of the forgotten man, at least as the national media uh, kind of looks at Clemson. It's like they don't. Re- he's actually a starter from you know the best, the nation's best defense in 2014. So, yeah, you're you're right. We kind of forget about him too here. Like if he can get back and be healthy and be just you know 75 percent, 80 percent of what he was, then I think that's a that's a huge for a huge thing for Clemson. Let let me ask you about um, the the nickel Sam position in, in Dorino Daniel. You seem to give a Daniel high marks from the spring game, and I think coaches feel pretty good about him. This is his fourth year with the program now um there's some confusion i think just most people have some confusion about that nickel sam i mean it's um where does dorian o'daniel fit in is, is he only uh, in the sam role could he play the nickel as well does he have that kind of speed um but i don't know if you could just speak to that a little bit and what we do uh, how we use him okay well uh the reason he hasn't played that all that much in the past two years really is because he is more of a sam than a hybrid uh, I, I'd love to see him on the field more. Every time he's gotten snaps, he's been he's done quite well from the position. And frankly, it's it's the other team that dictates how much he plays. If we're playing a spread team, we'll be in the nickel most of the time, and he won't see the field that much. But uh, against Louisville, Georgia Tech, especially the last two years, he's destroyed because we've been playing uh, you know pro style slash run heavy teams where we don't need a third corner. But uh, I think he's due for a breakout year. Um, we're we're going to play a few more not necessarily a few more pro-style teams, but I think he's progressed a bit more to where they will trust him uh, to, to stay in the 4-3 against three wide sets. Like let Travis Blanks last year, he backed up Travis Blanks. 
quite frankly, I would have been uh, totally fine seeing O'Daniel take more blanks as snaps. Um, I think the only thing limiting O'Daniel in terms of how much he plays against, how much he gets split out against a slot receiver really is his lateral quickness. I haven't seen, I haven't really watched him enough in man coverage situations to see how well he performs. Uh, you know, ask him to cover a flat in a cover three. I'm sure he can do that, no problem. Same with a hook zone. That's not the concern. It's, uh, it's when he's split out, as Travis Blanks was fairly often last year, when we didn't go with the nickel. Um, like Travis Blanks, he was more of a hybrid guy. He came in as a safety, uh, played nickel his freshman year, you know, had a few injuries, didn't play safety that well. We moved him back to nickel Sam last year, and he, he held on to the starting job. Uh, but there were some games where he only had a few snaps because we were in the nickel the whole time. And I think that will limit some of Daniel's snaps this year as well when we have to go with three corners the, almost the entire game. Uh, but there will be some instances where we employ the 4-3 um, almost exclusively. And if not exclusively, then there will be some times where we just roll with it if we can't substitute, for example. And we'll, we'll, we'll split him out, I think. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, the, the outlook for the season is becoming more and more dreary when we start getting into uh, some of the weaknesses in the secondary in that nickel-sam position. Uh, even though, the, like, I think you, you feel like Dan O'Daniel will be really good in that Sam role, but because he's not in the hybrid type or we don't know what we're getting in terms of his coverage skills, um, that becomes a bit of a, a question mark because we simply we don't have the bodies uh, in the secondary. To, I mean, without Baker, without uncertainty about Wiggins, I don't know. Uh, let's talk about an area where I th feel like things are a little bit brighter, um, and that's the linebacker position. Um, you also wrote an article about linebacker reads recently, and I thought that was really interesting. And it, basically, you know, for if you haven't read it, it's it just goes to show it, you kind of detail how linebackers uh, look at the running back, uh, the and the offensive lineman to to tell if it's going to be a a run or a pass. Um, let me ask you what, what uh, you're saying a lot of high schools use this. I'm, I'm curious to know about the learning curve as like a freshman, like Tra uh, Shaq Smith or Trey Lamar. What is it about being a freshman at the linebacker position that makes it so difficult to, uh, to pick up on things really quickly? Well, I'd say, first of all, the speed of the game, uh, you're going up against players that are just as talented as you. Whereas in high school, you know, you've got four and five stars that are just monsters. Uh, they can do whatever they want and wreck things on their own. Uh, but secondly, it's it really it. Offenses are far more complex at this level. Uh, take Clemson for example. There was a play where we had a, a read key that completely fooled Trey Lamar, uh, and you know it's a great learning experience for him to go up against this offense in practice every single day. Uh, but really, his his development will be determined on how quickly he picks up his assignment, not just in terms of read keys, but you know learning what the play call is, all the hand signals coordinating the defense as the Mike, the Mike linebacker is supposed to do. Um, I think he has a very high ceiling, and I think he'll get a significant workload this year as the number two Mike linebacker. But he may take a few lumps. You know, it, offenses are going to throw out all sorts of different things, um, just trying to prey on a freshman out there. They uh, will play will – do the play in particular which I, where I highlighted his, his mistake, or not necessarily his mistake, but just that he was a little slow in reading the key – uh, I think we rolled out Watson to the right and pulled the left guard with him um, in one of those pop pass plays, and he was just slow to react to it. He reacted but just a little too slow. It, it's plays like that which will really showcase where he has work to do. 
But then again, you know, this is almost like half of a redshirt year for him, being being here for spring practice. Uh, it, it's a half redshirt year, which was invaluable. It'll, it'll give him plenty of time in the weight room this summer, uh, plenty of time with the coaching staff this entire past semester, as opposed to showing up in, you know, in the end of June or early July with just a little bit of time with football before classes start. Um, but you know, linebacker development is, is much harder than any other position, I would say, just because there's so much they have to diagnose before the snap and process immediately at the snap. They have to know whether to drop back or charge the line, and you make that decision instantaneously based on what a ton of different players are doing. You, you can watch the running back and completely miss what the line's doing and vice versa. Uh, misdirection, plays like that, just all sorts of things he has to be aware of and can't think about. If you sit there thinking, you've already, you're already a step behind. So it, it's instinctive, but you have to learn what you're supposed to do before you can really just let the instinct take over, so to speak. Um, but I'm excited. Both both he and Smith looked good, uh, physical specimens. So the, the ceiling is remarkably high. It uh, we may take a few lumps this year with them, but put them in at the end of games. You know, we've got a few warm up games after Auburn to to let them get a significant workload, and that'll pay dividends for the depth uh, throughout yeah. the course of the year. Because let's not forget, we didn't have hardly any linebacker depth last year. It was Goodson and Boulware. Um, those two were on the field almost all the time. And, you know, then the, the Sam linebacker would come in, you know, Blanks or O'Daniel. But we were rolling with, with Bullware and Goodson almost the entire time until the end of the year we started to see Kendall Joseph come along. Um, but, I mean, we had Jalen Smith as Ben Bullware's backup, which I think Shaq Smith will overtake him sooner rather than later at weak side linebacker. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, Kendall Joseph for a second because the word around Clemson um, is that he looks – he looks good, and you hear a lot of um, chatter about how he performed last year, and he was the, the front runner. He was going to start over B.J. Goodson, who had a hell of a year, was a fourth-round draft pick. Um, I know you can't take a lot from this spring game, but in, in that limited sample size, like how, how do you feel about Kendall Joseph? And maybe uh, dating back to his performance from last year, do you feel like that is a, an upgrade uh, over B.J. Goodson? Uh, I'm not ready to say that's an upgrade. Uh, Goodson had – a fantastic year by all accounts. He was remarkable. He was our best linebacker. Um, Boulware is the fan favorite, but Goodson was far more steady, far more reliable, and frankly, just a, a better player for the large majority of the year. Um, so Joseph, yeah, to, to be compared to BJ Goodson, that's very encouraging. Um, my concern with Joseph, if there is one, it is going to be his height. He's about 5'11", and put him next to Boulware, That's and that's two linebackers who are on the wrong side of six feet. So, um, I think if there is an upgrade, uh, it is perceived as pass coverage, but let's not forget B.J. Goodson had some of the best combine numbers of all the linebackers. So we, uh, we harped about his lack of athleticism, apparently, uh, last season, pass coverage in particular, but his cone drill, his, his 40 time, they were, they, were, they were all elite in the, the top, the upper echelon of all the linebackers. So it, it'll be, a, it'll be a interesting to see how well he performs relative to Goodson. Uh, I'm not ready to say that he's an upgrade, uh, but I think he's he may be a little more quicker laterally, which that you need that in a Mike, uh, Mike linebacker, obviously, because they're they're flowing all across the line of scrimmage on both sides of the line. Um, he may have a better drop into coverage as well. I paid a, I paid close attention to that in particular at the spring game, and he looked good dropping back in coverage. I think he's slightly more fleet of foot, obviously not as big or as strong because Goodson just had monster strength. That bench press was was gaudy 
But I feel good about linebackers, uh, especially the depth. Joseph, I think, is going to be more than solid. I think he can come close to the production Goodson had last year. But I don't think he'll get quite as many snaps because, you know, someone like Trey Lamar will come in, whereas Joseph didn't take as many snaps from Goodson last year because he wasn't healthy. And he didn't really start taking a significant workload until the end of the season, uh, particularly the Oklahoma game was where he really made it, where he made his impact. Yeah, and it, I got to ask you about the linebacker position. Um, and I think it was uh, someone had, had written on it um, about some of the, I don't, don't want to say the bus, but the, the, maybe the like Bulware or Goodson filled some the wrong gap, and and it allowed the running back to to get open. What what's what do you attribute that to? Is that just is that filling the wrong gap? Is it is it reacting too quickly? And I'm talking about like the FSU game where Dalvin Cook on that first drive he broke open for like 70 yards. Uh, uh, so well, what, that actually yeah. wasn't bad gap integrity. That I think that play was Green just missing a tackle. Green came down to fill, and he missed that tackle there. Um, but I, I think you're right that that Bullware was, if I recall, he was coming in on a blitz through the backside B gap, and he would have been there if he weren't blitzing, or at least in a better position to help out. But I, I think that play was was Green missing the tackle at the point of attack. Okay, and and maybe like uh, Henry in the national championship game. Kind of a, I think it was in the first, their second drive maybe where he he broke open. Um, is that also is I mean, it it, it really kind of sheds some light on how much we're relying on safeties uh, in the case that a, a linebacker is is hitting the gap or if he's blitzing. Um, but what do you attribute that to? Is that is that again a safety play? Uh, well, I I don't think so. I don't think we had many missed gaps out of our linebackers last year. Uh, generally, whenever we gave up a big run. It was when we had a guy who would come in on a blitz and would get washed out or sealed, and then there was a big hole where he would have been. Uh, the Henry's touchdown run, the long touchdown run in the first quarter against Alabama, comes to mind in that it was a fourth and one situation. We had everyone on the line. Uh, you know, we, we blitzed Boulware. I think we blitzed, uh, I think it was Blanks, and uh, we had our safeties on the line as well. So if you're in a short yardage situation, you aren't going to have your safeties back. You're not going to have your linebackers five yards back off the line of scrimmage. You're, you're trying to stop them. You're trying to stuff them and keep them from getting a foot, two feet, a yard. Uh, so if there is a hole, it's always a big run. And that's what happened there. We, we blitzed into, into the right gaps, but we're sealed out. And there's one hole, and your safeties are too far in to get back and recover, and that's a long run. That happens in short yardage all the time. You either – get stuffed, you barely get it, or you get a long gain because everyone is so close. If you break through, it's, it's, it's a long run every time. And with a back like Henry, if you let him pick his legs up, he's, he's a train. You're not going to stop him unless you can hit him before he loses his momentum, which, which we did quite well all night. I think he had 20 yards in the, in the entire second half just because we were living in the backfield. Uh, the defensive line, like we talked about earlier, was, was monstrous in that game. And frankly, should have won this won us the national championship. Uh, so I don't I don't really blame it on linebackers missing gaps. Uh, it, it really had more to do with uh, you know situational play like fourth and one, and just getting sealed out of a blitz. Okay, so that's actually kind of uh, that's reassuring, just because it, it means that you know it'll happen. There's like I guess kind of a downside to some of the aggression of uh, the Venable scheme, but it sounds like for the most part it's all positive. Um, and the things that like, kind of look where you, you, shed a, you shed the light on the linebacker, um, it might not actually be his fault. But like you said, more situational type plays. Right. 
Um, right. you know, the problem we had with, with linebackers and their gaps, I, I think Syracuse comes to mind there. All the read option work they did, right. we had, we had busts from both linebackers that day. And that could have just been Syracuse. Syracuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't remember anything specific except a few zone reads where their quarterback kept it, and I think it was Goodson took a took the wrong guy, and that left a gap wide open that was his responsibility. Uh, but really, we didn't see too many gaps or uh, busted gap play alignments for, out of linebackers last year, except for you know Syracuse. A few come to mind. Uh, Florida State, yeah, Cook beat us on a few long runs, but the first one was Green missing a tackle after he filled the gap as he was supposed to. I think he had another long run in the first quarter, but I, I don't remember the specifics of that play without looking at it. Um, yeah, I, I don't mean to spring these on. Yeah, I was just I was just kind of thinking back to some of the – and you're right, Syracuse was probably the big one that really stands out, but mm-hmm. uh, that could have just been an outlier. Um, but let me ask you just on a, on a high level, I feel like we, we've hit on all the, the, the position groups. We were, I think, the 10, number 10 total defense, uh, ranked defense last year. And then, of course, number one the year before. Do you see us sneaking back into the, the top 25? Um, do we have potential to be top 15? Uh, where, do you, where do you see that? Well, I think, I think there's certainly the potential for top 25. I'm going to go ahead and say that's the goal. I know that's what most people wanted out of the defense last year. They knew there would be regression. Uh, most people said, yeah, I think top 25 re- is reasonable. Um, and then we turned out another top 10 defense again. This year, there isn't nearly as much talent as there was last year. Uh, but the potential is there. I think, I think 20, top 25 is a little more optimistic. Um, whereas I, I would have said last year, top 25 is, is a realistic goal. This year, I'm not sure it is just because of all the questions in the secondary and losing so many draft picks. Uh, yeah, we, may be, we have more depth in the front seven this year, but we don't have this, quite the same level of experienced talent. You know, there's all the potential in the world on the front four, front seven as well, but it's not quite as experienced. You know, we had, we lost all these starters from 2014, and everyone was like, oh, Clemson lost nine starters off their top-ranked defense. Their defense is going to regress horribly because they lost nine guys. But people didn't stop and realize, well, we did. People outside of the program didn't stop and realize. All the guys who were replacing the people we lost had a tremendous amount of experience because our defense was so deep in 2014 that all those guys just came in and, oh, now I'm the starter instead of second string. Cool, nothing's changed. I've, I've done this before. And we didn't have the same depth last year, but we were still just as good at the very top, at the top row of the depth chart. This year that's not quite the case. There's a little more depth, but I don't think it's reasonable to expect certainly not a top 15 defense. And I think top 25 would be uh, a tremendous success given what we have left. There's uh, plenty of strength along the front, good linebackers, but I think secondary play may, may haunt us, especially uh, if the offense is as good as we expect and teams are playing keep up all the time, throwing the ball all over the place, trying to get back in the games, uh, short and lengthening the games as well. I think that'll really hurt the defensive yards uh, just because everyone's going to have to try and come back against us. It's a great point and uh, kind of a sobering uh, take on on the defense because uh, we we're, we tend to gravitate towards uh, 2014. Well, like you said, things improved and we saw a lot of bench players come up. But this is a this is a different different go round. Different players that have no experience that we'll be relying on. And like you said, the the depth and talent's not quite where it where it was in uh, 2015. With that said, and we won't spend a lot of time on the offense, but um, how how good does the offense have to, or I'm sorry, the defense have to be, because 
our offense could be historically good. Would you would you agree with that? For sure. I think it's the best offense on paper that Clemson's ever had. Uh, hands down the best quarterback in school history and college football right now. Uh, one of the best running backs, amazing receivers. You've got Mike Williams, Artavis Scott, and gosh, everyone else behind them. <sighs> Hunter Renfro, Jordan Leggett, Deion Kane, assuming he makes it back on the team. Ray Ray McLeod has put on some weight. And then that offensive line, that's the, the last year's offensive line was five new starters, and it turned out to be the best offensive line in certainly my lifetime as a Clemson fan. And by all accounts right now, this year's line looks better. So I don't think the defense has to be that great in order for us to, you know, make it all the way back to the playoff. You know, there's, there's really one humongous stumbling block that I see, and that's obviously in Tallahassee. Uh, Auburn, sure, that may be tight for little, but I still see us running away from them. Georgia Tech, I think that curse is coming to an end. Louisville may be tough, but it's still at home, and we have that offense. I mean, until Louisville figures out their own offense, I don't think they'll be able to keep up. So, yeah, it's Florida State. It's, it's, that, that's the season right there. And I don't feel good enough about their offense just yet, particularly their, their quarterback position. Um, I, think, I think right now that there isn't an, a defense in this country that can slow down Clemson because you take away one thing and they can beat you so many other ways. Right now there's not, a, there's not a hole on Clemson's offense, and that gives the defense a lot of breathing room. And like I said, everyone's going to be trying to keep up, and they'll throw the ball all over the place, stop the clock a bunch to try and come back. That'll make the defense look worse, but I don't think they'll have to be as good as the last two defenses have been. But even then, they may still surprise us. You know, we've we've always seemed to underestimate Brent Venables and the product he's put on the field every year he's been here. And I'm hoping that's still the case because while I'm not necessarily high on this defense yet, I'm definitely not a pessimist when it comes to this team or, or even this defense. Um, there's there's just no holes on offense, and the defense is good enough up front to take away the run like Venables wants to do. And it may look like 2012 secondary for a little bit, but they'll get the kinks worked out, and I think I think overall it'll be a solid, certainly a top 50 defense, and I think that'll be good enough to, to win 11 games at a minimum. If, if we did somehow get into like that top 25, if, you, if you're scratching your head kind of the way we did last year, like, wow, this defense is – it's top 10 good again. And I'm not saying necessarily top 10, but if you see us as like, wow, this defense is better than I expected, um, who will be the guys that will step up, that will that will be, the, you know, I guess kind of the Kevin Dodds um, or the B.J. Goodsons of, of this team on, on defense? Okay. I'm going to say Austin Bryant. I think he's looked upon as the number one defensive end right now on either side, uh, left side or right side. Um, I'll say – Corn Wiggins, a lot depends on his health, but I think he's he's one of those X factor guys because we don't know how he's how healthy he'll be, quite frankly. So I'd label him as another X factor at probably the the biggest the biggest need, the biggest question mark right now is his position. So I, I I'm going to say Bryant and Wiggins, and perhaps Van Smith as well, just nice. because there's no one behind him. <laughs> <laughs> So let me ask you, I've got to ask you this. I'm going to ask everyone uh, that we bring on. What I think the na- national championship odds are 8-1 to one for Clemson right now. Um, how much money do you put on them? Uh, we'll just say getting back to the playoff, but also potentially winning the championship. Hmm. You know, as I was leaving the stadium uh, after the Alabama game last year, all of them said, we'll see you in Tampa next year. And you know, that was before we lost all the players to the NFL on defense early. And, you know, at that point in time, I would have said, oh, yeah, for sure. 
Clemson's going to be in that final two without a doubt. Now I think it'll be a lot harder, obviously, winning in Tallahassee. If uh, McGuire's still their quarterback, then I feel a lot better. But if it's Francois, he's dynamic. He's far more talented. Uh, that game right now is a toss-up, but that game is, is what determines whether or not Clemson's in the playoff or not right there. I don't think Clemson gets in the playoff unless they win the ACC. I think they can get in with one loss if it's not to Florida State uh, and not at the end of the season, obviously. I, think, I don't think that a non-ACC champion is going to sneak into the playoff, so I think Clemson has to beat Florida State, and that, that's the game that determines uh, the season, quite frankly. So right now I think Clemson will win that game. Uh, I'm probably the resident optimist at STS, so I, I think Clemson will – run the table right now and get back to the playoff. And I'd put those odds. Well, I'd, how much money would I put down? I'm not, I'm not a betting man, but gosh, I, I'd feel pretty safe in, in, you know, a, a two figure bet. <laughs> <laughs> two fi- ten ten figures. Bucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm going to say up to a hundred. I'd feel, I'd feel pretty, pretty confident. Nice, Anything nice. more than that though. And I'm, I'm not feeling so good. <laughs> when I, I think, when you have, it's weird. I think in uh, Vegas, I think Ohio State has better odds than Clemson, uh, as well as Alabama. That's no surprise. But uh, I, I, I tend to agree. Florida State is the biggest uh, potential stumbling block along the way, and is is uh, I guess the the national pundits start to favor them more than our stock starts to go down because, like you said, we're we're mutually exclusive. Us and Florida State, you're not going to be a uh, lose the ACC championship and make it to the the playoffs. Right. So. If you are a betting person, I, I, uh, my, my betting advice would be to wait until uh, the yep. beginning of the season. <laughs> yeah, wait until what is that? Late October? When is that game? End of October? Right. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's in October this year. I'm not sure exactly when, but we'll know then which one of us is going to the playoff because whoever wins that game is going to be the ACC champion and is will be in the playoff representing this conference. I, I agree, and I don't think – I don't know how much you know about the Coastal or how much research you've done there. I don't feel like there is uh, a team that will be as good as UNC was last year. There might, there might be four or five better teams, and you know, a better, you know, the team that will emerge from that I think probably will still be uh, the lesser um, as compared to North Carolina from last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're my pick for the Coastal right now. Um, I like what Virginia Tech did bringing in Justin Fuente. I think they'll be back to – well, I don't want to say respectability because they were still respectably mediocre, if that's even <laughs> possible. They weren't horrible, but I think I think they're back towards the you know nine ten win seasons they used to have. But right now, I think North Carolina is head and shoulders above everyone else, and you know, on that side of the league, uh, quite frankly, I think they've got an upgrade in addition by subtraction at quarterback. Marquise Williams was. Uh, this sounds. This is. I don't mean this as an insult to Taj Boyd because comparing Marquise Williams to Taj Boyd is not fair to Taj. But Marquise Williams was a poor man's Taj Boyd. Uh, Boyd was not renowned, renowned for his, you know, decision making or football IQ or accuracy. But Marquise Williams made him look like Tom Brady. And I, I think I think Mitch Trubisky, Trubisky, the guy, uh, he's the he was the number yeah. two quarterback the last two years. They brought him in quite frequently, actually, for for a, a second QB. Uh, I think he's. Far, a far better option than Marquise Williams, and their defense is going to be a year better under Gene Chizik. <laughs> How crazy is that to say? And they still have Elijah Hood. They still have some good receivers. I think UNC is the class of the Coastal right now. Miami fans, you know, both Miami fans, I think, want to talk about Mark Richt or Brad Kaya, who I've never been high on. 
Uh, I don't think Miami's going to be back just yet. I think they have the potential to, of course, with, with Kaya, but I don't think they're good enough anywhere else. And I think, I think it's going to be Clemson or Florida State versus UNC again in Charlotte. Yeah, and it, I can't see – I think Georgia Tech, which, which is always that game, especially the one in Atlanta, which we always worry about. I just don't – with the way that Venables is able to – like exactly what you talk about in your articles – um, with gap integrity and filling the filling the gaps, I just don't see them posing a, a threat to us, both in that game or even as the coastal potential coastal champion. What do you think about them? Georgia Tech, they're always a wild card just because they're so different. But you know, the four three over was designed to stop the wishbone offenses at Oklahoma, for example. You know, I think it was Jimmy Johnson was defensive coordinator at Oklahoma State in the eighties and design this defense to shut down the wishbone, which isn't quite what Georgia Tech does, but it's still, it's no coincidence that Brent Venables has owned Paul Johnson every year. I think the one year they had some success on offense was 2012 in a shootout, but they still didn't win. Uh, 2014, when we lost down there, we, we know what happened there, and it certainly wasn't the defense's fault. Um, so yeah, sure, they, they're a wild card. It's in Atlanta. I don't think they will win enough games to, first of all, I don't think they'll beat Clemson. And second of all, I don't think they'll beat UNC. That game's in Chapel Hill. Uh, Georgia Tech is at a talent discrepancy to, against everyone in the league except Wake Forest and Syracuse. And gosh, perhaps, well, I don't know, I think Duke might be out recruiting them now as well. They're, they've fallen so far behind in terms of the ath caliber of athlete they bring in. And I don't think it's any surprise that Paul Johnson's greatest teams, except for that aberration of an Orange Bowl team two years ago, came with Chan Gailey's talent. Because let's not forget, Chan Gailey brought in four- and five-star talent, not consistently, but always a four- or five-star guy to Atlanta virtually every year. And that talent phased out, and they dropped down to you know six and seven wins. Then they had that Orange Bowl team two years ago, and now they're back down to, what, three and nine last year? Now, Georgia Tech good. needs to figure out what they're going to do long-term because if they can keep Johnson and you know just keep – meddling away like they do or fire him and try to rebuild with a different type of player. And that's going to take years. So I'm not saying they should fire him, but I don't think they're ever going to be a consistent power program. And I, quite frankly, I think that their record for the past four or five years, not including last year, obviously, because it was so poor was inflated by playing in such a poor division. I think if they yeah. weren't in the ACC coastal, I think Johnson would have been fired a while ago. He's a good coach. It's, it's unique, but they just can't bring the type of athletes needed there to be successful in the Power Five. They, it, it's not going to happen. I think right. even Wake Forest may out-recruit them soon enough. And it, it's kind of a – I know, like you said, they don't have the same resources or tradition that uh, Clemson or Florida State have, but they are in a recruiting hotbed right there in Atlanta. So mm -hmm. if they ever got like an up-and-coming uh, Dabo Sweeney-type coach, it could, be a, it could be a scary thing in terms of, uh, in terms of recruiting. But you, you're right. It, I'm, I'm happy with Johnson there because I feel like we have uh, – as long as we have Venables, I don't, I don't see us losing to them. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's a good thing in terms of recruiting. We're able to go right into Atlanta and only having to compete with some of the SEC guys. Um, right, right. I mean, Georgia Tech, they're an afterthought in their own city. I mean, the <laughs> Atlanta hierarchy is what? The Braves, the Falcons, the I guess UGA, then the Hawks. The Hawks and then yeah. Georgia Tech is somewhere down there with like Georgia State and who else is it? Kennesaw State, aren't they nearby? I don't know. They're an afterthought. And so there's, a, there's a hockey team, which, team too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know who that is. 
I'm too southern to know much about hockey. <laughs> but anyway, well, um, but yeah, the coastal. I'd say that's that's UNC's to lose. Yeah, it, maybe uh, tying a loop on uh, on football here. Just a couple of miscellaneous questions. So the first one is it, it's it relates to like Clemson football politics. The the student tick. Student ticket issue should uh, the the should the students be charged uh, two hundred and I think twenty five dollars per season? What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. I don't really have a firm opinion on this. Yeah, I think it's kind of like it it's it sucks since the students already pay so much for tuition, but we're we're the only school that doesn't do it. They're still offering free tickets in the upper deck now. I know there's a huge difference in the experience between the upper and the lower deck because my season tickets are first row of the upper deck, which it's a great view, but it is not the same. You're, it, it, you're above the action instead of in it, and that's a huge deal, especially for students because the, the lower level student section is the best place to sit in the entire stadium. Well, stand, I should say. So I understand why they're upset. They pay a ton in fees and tuition already. The athletic department makes millions every year. So, yeah, it's kind of like why do they need more money from us? But at the same time, you know – Clemson is behind not just a, a lot of other, you know, SEC schools, South Carolina, for example, but they're behind a lot of other ACC schools in revenue. The AD doesn't make nearly as much as our, our biggest rivals do, quite frankly. So I do not blame them for trying to create new revenue streams because, quite frankly, it's needed. But on the other hand, I really don't think that, you know, exploiting the students as that revenue stream is the right way to do it. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. You know, if I were still a student, I would gladly pay that 200 something dollars for lower level season tickets. I would do it just because it's a priority for me. I know it's not a priority for everyone else, and I know some people just can't afford that. You know, student loans are ridiculous right now. And even those who don't have student loans, that's still a lot of spending money or a lot of money to ask your parents for for, you know, seven football games. So I'm, I'm really on the fence on this one. I'm not, I'm not impassioned either way. I think Clemson needs to generate new revenue, of course, but quite frankly, that should come from an ACC network, <laughs> um, which is another, another a can of worms. But I don't blame the students for being upset about it one bit. Well, let me, let me ask you about this because you're, uh, you, you just graduated not too long ago. You still, like, you still have the, kind of the memories and the fondness of sitting that lower deck, but now, now you're uh, an adult uh, over 21 and able to sit in the <laughs> – by your own student, or not your own student, but your own season tickets. How do you feel about alcohol sales at the game? I and we have like an ongoing. I wouldn't say it's a debate. We um, we all feel the same that alcohol should be sold um, at the games because it's it's done in other sports, it's done in other college sports, and uh, it's people worry about kind of intoxication and, and the uh, students drinking too much. But it's mostly going to be if you charge six dollars or five dollars a beer, it's going to be adults. I feel. Uh, consuming sure. the yeah, alcohol, it's and it, it can much. be. A, yeah, I don't want to go back out to my tailgate at halftime if if I don't have to. And and five dollars, six dollars for a beer is is a good value for me. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, it's it's not particularly relevant to me because I'm not much of a drinker. Um, but I think I'd be fine with it. I know a lot of people wouldn't. I think I, I forget what the rule is. I think I don't know if it's a university rule or like a city of Clemson law that prevents alcohol sales. Um, I was I was a kid at the time, but I remember the Carolina Panthers played their very first season at Death Valley before their stadium was built. It was Erickson Stadium at the time. It was, I think, 95, 95, 96. Right. Their stadium in Charlotte wasn't built yet, so they played their home games at Clemson. And there was a, a big fight between 
city of Clemson churches versus the NFL about beer sales, beer sales in Clemson on Sundays for the NFL games, the Panthers games, and the NFL won. Um, and a lot of people, I, you know, I don't remember at the time because I was five, four or five years old. Um, a lot of people said that could open the door to potentially selling alcohol at Clemson games on Saturdays, but that hasn't happened yet. I don't know the legal ramifications of why it hasn't happened, but I think I'd be fine with it. Um, you know, if you're selling to adults, they better be responsible. And if they're not, you know, there's security there to keep things from getting too out of hand. And no one's going to get that drunk from drinking a couple beers in a stadium. Now, I'm not sure I'd, it'd be advisable in the early September noon games. You drink three to three of those beers, and all of a sudden you're at the first aid center. Um, so I think if they have some sort of limit or at least a, a tight a tighter security in place for beer sales, I'd be fine with it. It'd be a great revenue stream. I know a lot of people would enjoy it. It, it would create value. Uh, DRAD is, is always talking about how he wants to increase the value for those who attend the, the games because, you know, attendance has been declining nationally uh, as more and more people opt to stay at home and watch on TV with their fridge, on the couch, you know, just having all the comforts there. So I think that'd be a way to add value, which uh, DRAD talks about. But... I think there are a few legal hurdles that the school would have to would have to leap before that could happen. Yeah, no, it, I think that's a fair argument. It's not just it's it's not so white and black. Make the decision or don't. Uh, there's always uh, local politics and things to account for. Um, I just I, it's saddening seeing thirty year old, forty year old grown men chugging beer uh, at halftime or or thirty minutes before the game starts. So I mean, what's the difference between chugging a a beer at the tailgate and sipping it in the game, and uh, I mean, it, I don't know, I don't know where the morality, uh, where you fall, where that falls on on your, on the scale there. But I, anyhow, I'd be totally fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily drink much of it. I'm not much of a beer guy or an alcohol guy at all. I know that's crazy. A kid in his early 20s saying that, but I'd, I'd be fine with it. It'd be more revenue, and you know, like you said, less chugging. So I'm all for it. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's for safety. It's it's that's what we care about. Um, but anyway, Alex, <laughs> I'm gonna about to wrap up here, but I'll I'll leave with this. Um, Game of Thrones. We're in, uh, and by the time we post this uh, episode three, will probably already be out and live. But um, what's your take on the on season six so far? And where do you, what do you think? Uh, where where do you think we're going from here? Hmm, well, I'm one of those book readers, so uh, oh god. I, uh, I, I kind of feel like I know a few things just based on book theories. Uh, I, think, I think this weekend we'll find out who Jon Snow's parents are. I'm uh, one of those subscribers to the, I think it's called the R plus L equals J theory. I think, I think that his dad is actually Prince Rhaegar and his mom is Ned Stark's sister, not uh, his father being Ned Stark as everyone's been led to believe. Um, but yeah, I've, I've enjoyed the first two episodes thus far, particularly episode two. That was was one of the best ones of the series, I thought. Uh, even with the very telegraphed uh, resurrection, I don't want to spoil too much for people who may not have seen it yet or don't necessarily care to see it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a very well done episode. I'm just as curious as non-book readers are to see what's happening since the last chapter of the most recent book, which came out, gosh, six years ago, I think, five years ago. Was was you know Jon Snow's death? So uh, we're we're I'm just as much in the dark as everyone else, and I'm excited for it. I uh, I look forward to Sunday nights. How weird is that? You know, I, no one looks forward to Sunday nights, but I do now. 
That's a great point because I think research has shown that Sunday is when uh, Americans are at their most saddest point in the week. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that along with Silicon Valley and uh, John Oliver, it, it doesn't have to be. So if you're not a subscriber to HBO, um, you, you should be. Uh, for maybe people that don't pay attention to Game of Thrones, what would be, uh, I always say like sell it to someone that's not paying attention or that isn't uh, watching it currently. Why would, you, why would you watch it if you're not already? Ooh, gosh. No, actually, this is the only TV show I've ever watched of my own volition. Um, my sister is the TV, bu TV buff. I've always enjoyed movies or video games far more in my uh, downtime, if you will. Uh, but she and my cousins, my younger cousins, both recommended it to me, and I figured I'd give it a shot. And by a couple episodes in, I, I was hooked. I, I thought it was remarkably well-written. Uh, the actors are all great. Uh, the production's Phenomenal. I mean, there's a reason this show sweeps the Emmys every single year, basically. Uh, it's the only TV show I've ever wanted to watch. The only one ever. Except, like, cartoons as a kid. You know, I never watched any other show. Nothing on networks. I don't even watch Netflix. <laughs> but Game of Thrones is, is, is the show that I've, I've watched. It's really the only one. And if someone who doesn't watch TV watches Game of Thrones, I'd, I'd say that's a, a pretty good endorsement of it. You heard it here first. Uh, if you don't have that HBO subscription, uh, you know they're now a sponsor of the Clemson podcast, HBO. So I uh, have to give that plug. <laughs> I didn't know that. No, I'm totally oh, by, kidding. By the way, I, I did not read the books until after I saw the show. So it wasn't that the books brought me into the show. The show brought me into the books. I uh, read the books for the first time last year. So, it, and it normally I, goes uh, in the reverse order. So that's yes, yes. The show, the show got me to read. Kids. You know, parents, tell your kids to uh, read Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, please don't. Uh, I probably it, shouldn't do that until they're, you know, teenagers. I mean, uh, it gives me and my girlfriend nightmares, and we're, yeah, we're in our 20s, so, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, anyhow, no, I, it's a great show. I, I'm not into, like, a lot of the, if you, a lot of people, I think, from the outsiders, they're like, oh, it's a, like a fairy tale, it's, you know, Lord of the Rings, or it's Harry Potter, but it, it's really not like that. It's not as much okay. like magic and stuff. It's, it's uh, it's really good. I'm I'm so sucked into it, and uh, I do like other TV shows, um, but this I have to say is the best thing on the air, and without uh, a it's, doubt, it's not even really close. So, anyhow, um, yeah, Alex, I, listen, I appreciate you you joining us. Um, we definitely have to get you on. I think it would be good to have you on before the season starts, when uh, we know a little bit more about um, how injuries and depth chart, all, everything's lining up, and uh, get some of your your season predictions. Oh, for sure. You should uh, bring me back on after the big weigh-in when all the players weigh themselves on, on camera in their underwear and we can, we can <laughs> assess dudes' body types, right? I yeah, think I did that article last year and I was like, I'm, I realize I'm writing an article about college dudes in their underwear, but whatever. <laughs> well, hey, sure, let's make it a tradition. I need to see Van Smith over 200. <laughs> yep, you and me both. All right. Well, yeah, Alex, thanks again for joining us, man, and uh, have, a good, have a good summer. Yeah, yeah, I will. I plan on it. Nice right, and warm man. down here in the south. <laughs> it's not, it's so the much, not so much in San Francisco. I know it's cold there all the time. I was there when I was a kid in June, and I was wearing a jacket. So it, it doesn't warm. change. Yeah, it doesn't change the whole uh, the whole year. In in summer, it actually gets cooler. So <laughs> <laughs> miserable. <laughs> all right, man. Well, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for having me.